X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Monday. Today is, of course, a good day to subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast and maybe tell one friend. Today, back in the day, August 10th, 1993, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was sworn in to the United States Supreme Court. Her father was a Jewish immigrant from Odessa, Ukraine. In the fall of 1956, Ginsburg enrolled at Harvard Law School, where she was one of only nine women in a class of about 500 men. The dean of law school at the time reportedly invited all of the female law students to dinner at his home and asked the female law students, why are you at Harvard Law School taking the place of a man? When her husband took a job in New York City, Ginsburg transferred to Columbia Law School. She became the first woman on two major law reviews, the Harvard Law Review and the Columbia Law Review. In 1972, Ginsburg co-founded the Women's Rights Project of the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, and in 1973, she became that project's general counsel. Among many of her contributions included her volunteering to write the brief for Reed v. Reed, in which the Supreme Court extended the protections of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to women. Ginsburg was dubbed the Thurgood Marshall of applying the Equal Protection Clause to women's rights. In 1980, she was nominated by Jimmy Carter to a seat on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Her time on that court earned her reputation as a moderate, so much so that Republican Orrin Hatch suggested her nomination to the Supreme Court. President Bill Clinton did nominate her as Associate Justice in 1993, making her the second woman on the court and now is the longest-serving Jewish Supreme Court Justice. With the retirement of Justice John Paul Stevens, Ginsburg became the senior member of what is sometimes referred to as the court's liberal wing. When the court splits 5-4 along ideological lines and liberal justices are the minority, Ginsburg has the authority to assign authorship of the dissenting opinion because of her seniority. And many Americans pray for her health every week. X-Ray. We'll start with your quick six news headlines. Mike Seelig from partner station KXRW has a focus on COVID from Dr. Art Simons and Dr. Beth Lee. And Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson joins with an update on preschool for all in Multnomah County. X-Ray. And first up, it is time for today's quick six local rundown. The special legislative session begins today. Among other things, Oregon lawmakers will consider a broader ban on chokeholds by police. A use of force reform bill has been included in the slate of draft bills. Oregon law currently allows law enforcement officers to use deadly force in particular circumstances, namely when an officer is preventing a suspect from escaping custody or when a suspect poses a significant threat of death or serious harm to an officer or others. That first part, allowing deadly force when an officer is preventing a suspect from escaping custody, led D. Ray McKesson to call Oregon's use of force statute among the worst in the country. The new legislative proposal being considered today will focus officers' use of force around the prevention of physical injury. It allows officers to use deadly force. The new bill will require officers to verbally warn people before using that kind of force. And if passed, restrictions on chokeholds will take effect immediately and the broad use of force provisions will take effect in January of next year, 2021. Lawmakers are also considering bills to help jobless and underemployed Oregonians. One of the bills will make sure that people who have been laid off can earn at least $300 a week from new part-time work before their unemployment payments are reduced. Representative Alyssa Kenny-Geyer posted on her Facebook page that some of the police reforms are moving forward in the legislative session, but she had advocated for more. She's also urging the legislature to take them up in a September special session. It hasn't yet been decided whether there will be a September special session. That would be special session number three. Hundreds of people gathered at Waterfront Park on Saturday evening without masks to see worship leader and political advocate Sean Foigt. In a YouTube video posted last week, Sean Foigt told his followers to join him in both Portland and Seattle at events dubbed Riots to Revival. 
He said in the video he wanted to combat the atmosphere of downtown protests by bringing worship and prayer to both cities over the weekend. He said it's time for the church to rise up and tell our government leaders and the rulers of big tech that we refuse to be silenced. Hundreds of people did show up. Very few were wearing masks. The majority of people interviewed said they had traveled from out of town. Similar crowded outdoor services have been held on the beaches in California, also in defiance of coronavirus restrictions, also organized by Sean Foigt. When asked about coronavirus concerns, people in attendance said their faith is in God. A group of demonstrators also attended the event. Could be heard shouting, put on your mask. Despite a few heated discussions about face coverings, the event remained nonviolent. And hopefully the outdoor event will not yield any significant spike in the coronavirus. Oregon Health Authority announced 263 new cases on Sunday, one new death. The total now is 21,272, and 356 people have died that are confirmed related to the coronavirus. The Oregonian has reported that 10 Oregon zip codes with the most coronavirus cases per capita. Hermiston has the most new cases, about 170 new ones, more than double the number of any location. Second highest is 97128 in McMinnville, 73 new cases. Third, Pendleton, 97801, also in Umatilla County. It's right next to Hermiston, 72 new cases. Fourth is Ontario, 97914 with 65 new cases. Salem is fifth, 97301 with 65 new cases. Number six in East Portland, 97236, Multnomah County. That added 48 new cases. Number seven is Umatilla itself, also in Umatilla County, 97882, right by Hermiston and Pendleton, 46 new cases. Then Gresham with 45 new cases, 97030. Ninth is Medford with 45 new cases. And 97233, East Portland and Gresham is number 10 with 44 new cases. No word from Zillow whether coronavirus cases per zip code will be listed on people's real estate profiles. And Portland's Spice Gentlemen's Club has been linked to an outbreak. The Ship Club reopened on June 19th, since announced a voluntary closure in July following an outbreak. Oregon health officials began their investigation late last month. They traced five cases of the virus to the club. The outbreak at Spice is Oregon's first cluster of COVID-19 infections linked to a strip club. Spice is the smallest of the 69 workplace outbreaks in Oregon. The largest outbreaks continue to be traced to prisons, shipping warehouses, and food processing facilities. Protest art pieces, the Trump Statue Initiative, they've been popping up throughout the city. The Portland exhibit, titled Ode to Putin, was displayed in three parts across the Tom McCall Waterfront Park. The first exhibit depicts a statue-like monument with law enforcement officers pulling a Black Lives Matter protester into an unmarked van with Donald Trump taking a selfie in front. The statues are actually painted actors who have been painted in gold from head to toe. The second exhibit is titled Some Federal Property We Can Attack. It shows Trump and three armed officers in gas masks standing around a mailbox. The third exhibit is a direct quote from Trump when he was questioned about Ghislaine Maxwell and her connection to alleged sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. The piece is entitled I Just Wish Her Well, Frankly, and it depicts Trump praying over a real-life photo of the president with Epstein and Maxwell. Brian Buckley, filmmaker and Academy Award nominee, is the brainchild of the exhibit. He had this to say about why he chose to exhibit his work in Portland. Here's the quote. Unfortunately, we don't pick the stops. The president seems to pick the stops for us. We're sort of like the fire department. We react to what Trump does, and then we race to that moment. Some good news. 93% of bars have been following COVID-19 state rules. Since July 3rd, the OLCC has been doing compliance checks in OLCC-licensed places around the state. They've made 3,654 compliance check visits to bars and restaurants. They visited Portland Metro, Salem, Bend, Medford, Eugene, the regions around there. They've had 328 actions that have ranged from violations to verbal instructions. 
And last week, they did suspend the license of a Rogue River bar and restaurant in the Medford region for failing to follow safety regulations. But overall, they found that most bars and restaurants have been following the safety guidance. And that's good news, since according to Eater, the Oregon Health Authority's senior health advisor, Ann Thomas, says the state doesn't have the time or contact tracers available to track potential restaurant or bar spread. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Partner station KXRW joins us with an update on COVID from Dr. Art Simons and Dr. Beth Lee. This is Mike Seelig with KXRW Radio in Vancouver. Getting the message out like you're doing, Mike, is what us as healthcare providers find so critical to be able to, to, to let people know. Doctors know, nurses know, we see it every day. It's the people that do the things that they're not supposed to do that make people sick, that they come in, that we have to take care of. That's the problem. And that was Dr. Art Simons from Battleground, Washington. I had asked to talk to Art and his wife, Dr. Beth Lee, to learn more about the coronavirus. We've been battling the coronavirus pandemic for many months now, and we've learned how to limit the spread of the disease. The Center for Disease Control's science-based advice is simple. Wear masks, wash your hands, and keep your distance from other people. While those measures have worked in some areas, people in other areas of the country have ignored the CDC's advice. They chose to listen to a different authority. Now the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. You know that, right? Coronavirus. That's a pretty good job we've done. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. And from our shores... You know, a lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat, as the heat comes in. Uh, Typically, that will go away in April. Of course, the virus didn't go away in April. We're now months into our country listening to two different advice streams. The people who followed science-based advice are surviving, and those who followed the utterly foolish advice of the president. This is a Fox News alert. We have just learned that Senator Rand Paul has tested positive for the coronavirus. ...about Republican Governor Mike DeWine testing positive for the coronavirus. Security advisor is the highest-ranking member of the president's inner circle to test positive for COVID. Herman Cain, the one-time presidential hopeful and former pizza company CEO, died today here in Atlanta after battling coronavirus. Cain, who was co-chair of Black Voices... Now there's a firestorm of COVID infections and deaths anywhere they're still choosing to follow foolish advice. But perhaps the greatest tragedy of all is that those people who ignore science and get infected are still going to expect our doctors and nurses to try and save their lives. Could you help me understand what the doctors in Florida hospitals are going through right now? Well, part of the problem is we're working our nurses, healthcare providers, doctors, uh, all mid-level people, anyone that's connected to taking care of people with COVID. Um, we're working them basically to death. People that used to work three and four days a week are now working seven days a week. Eight-hour shifts have morphed into 10 and 12-hour shifts, sometimes 18-hour shifts if you can't get someone to help. The whole risk, if one person gets it, others have to then isolate because you don't want to pass it on to everybody else. So it's a, just almost like a fusion reactor that's ready to explode. One thing goes, it affects five, then 10, then 15, 20. And that's just within the healthcare system in the hospitals. We just can't expect these people to continue at this pace indefinitely at this rate because a few people think it's 
not manly to wear a mask or, well, you're violating my rights. Well, what about the rights of the people who are trying to help sick people and do the right thing? After a while, when you kill all those people off, there won't be anyone to take care of other people. And it doesn't matter whether you have a mask or not, there won't be any doctors and nurses left to take care of anybody. So we really have to understand that there's lots of links in the chain that could fail, that could totally devastate the way that we provide medical care uh, currently in the United States. And here's our worry, Mike. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. We believe it's going to be a very dark winter in the entire country. There's no evidence suggesting a vaccine will be ready before the end of the year at the earliest. So really think January, February, March is much more likely, if that, as Dr. Fauci himself acknowledges, we're still in the first part of the wave and we don't know how high this tsunami is going to go. We're just starting to see the water come in. If you want to stop the spread of this deadly disease so we can reopen our economy, do these things. Wear a mask, wash your hands, keep your distance, and vote in November. This is Mike Seelig for X-Ray FM in Portland and KXRW Radio in Vancouver. I think what happens is it's going to go away. This is going to go away. It's going to go. It's going to leave. It's going to be gone. It's going to be eradicated. Uh, and uh, it might take longer. On Thursday, the Multnomah County Commission took a vote to refer Preschool for All to the November ballot. Here's Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson with an update on the vote and alignment with Universal Preschool Now. Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson has served on the Multnomah County Commission since May 2016. Prior to her service on the commission, she served East Portland as state representative for District 47. Today, Commissioner Vega-Peterson joins us to discuss Preschool for All. Welcome back, Commissioner. Thanks, Emily. It's so good to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I mean, we're, we're you know, as well as can be expected these days, there's so much going on, um, but it's been a really exciting week for Preschool for All, and so I'm really happy about that. Well, tell us, what is the exciting news about Preschool for All? So yesterday, um, the Multnomah County Board of Commissioners unanimously voted to send Preschool for All to the ballot, so voters will have a chance to vote in November of 2020 on providing universal tuition-free preschool for all three and four-year-olds in Multnomah County. Wow. Now, this is a project, an idea, a critical resource that has been in the works for how long? Well, years, actually. The um, There would have been a group of parents working um, with the Early Learning Multnomah's uh, Parent Accountability Council for at least eight years in um, conversations about what preschools should look like for, for their children, for their families. Um, there was work that a lot of organizations um, had taken part in early on. Um, I got involved um, over two years ago now um, when, um, when I was um, you know, asked to help bring their vision to, um, to fruition, to make it a reality. And so um, I convened the Preschool for All Task Force um, two years ago with a group of um, over, you know, it was over 100 individuals, actually, a total of 30 different organizations um, who sat um, at the table in work groups um, at the task force, as well as the Parent Accountability Council to really dig in and to say, um, what would it look like if every child in Multnomah County had a preschool that was right for them and every family was able to afford it? Um, yep, and that started the vision, that started the work last summer. 
um, the task force, which as I said before, was you know really made up of such a broad community group, parent voice, um, school district voice, we had um, community-based organizations, culturally specific organizations, we had healthcare, we had housing, uh, we had business and philanthropy. Um, you know, we had people in our work groups that were providers and workers and, and um, just, uh, you know, early learning experts. We really wanted to make sure that we were putting forward a plan that was um, not just right for our community um, and right for our kids, but really would, would be something that worked. Um, so last July, we released that report, um, Preschool for All. And, um, and since then, we've been really working hard about how can we make this a reality? How can we get it um, in front of voters to, to make it something that happens? And so what would this mean to families of three and four-year-olds? How will their lives be different? This can be such a life-changing thing, thing for families. So Preschool for All, you know, when we started with our vision, we really wanted to make sure that um, the children and families who had the least access to preschool, the people who, the children who um, weren't able to get into quality preschool right now, um, we're going to have a path to get there. And that's what I'm so proud of Preschool for All doing is that um, it provides um, a system to build to a fully universal system for all three and four-year-olds, um, but it also is prioritizing those kids that have the least access right now um, to quality preschool, which include, you know, children from low-income families, brown, black, and all children of color, children with developmental delays and disabilities, children of incarcerated parents, um, children experiencing houselessness. So, you know, we really want to make sure that everybody's in line, but we're making sure that, um, that these children are getting the access they need. Um, to really make the difference in their life. Um, so as we develop and grow this program to universal, you know, we want to make sure that this is something that's going to be provided for all, um, you know, all kids in Multnomah County. And, um, and it's a really exciting thing because we know that the cost of childcare, the cost of early education is so expensive for all families in Multnomah County. Um, and, and providing this public assistance um, means it's going to be a great, um, you know, a, a great thing to get kids to have access in a universal way that the, that isn't going to be a burden on families. Um, it also makes a huge difference for the workers in early education. Um, I, you know, that's one of the things with the system that we have here in the United States, where our childcare system, our preschool system is, is, you know, mainly privately funded. We only have about 15% of three and four year olds in Multnomah County that have access to public um, uh, public preschool right now. And that means, um, you know, the, the tuition is basically paying for all the expenses for a preschool system. And um, what's happened is that workers have not been paid the living wage that they deserve for the work that they're doing for our children. Um, you know, with kindergarten um, teachers, you know, having, you know, what you'd consider a living wage, that's not the true. That's not um, true for preschool teachers, right? Preschool teachers are making um, 13, 14, 15, maybe $18 an hour if you're a classroom teacher, um, but it's not enough to live on. So that's one of the other really exciting things that Preschool for All does is ensure living wages for those um, for those classroom teachers and um, assistants who are helping with learning in the environment um, by making sure that classroom teachers have a living wage that's comparable to a, a, a kindergarten teacher's salary and any classroom assistants. Um, would be having a living wage that in 2020 dollars would be $18 an hour, but we, we expect to be more um, when we open the doors for the classrooms. Now we know this is an this is an idea whose time has come not only because of the impact that you just described, but there are two initiatives going for universal preschool in Multnomah County preschool for all, and then universal preschool now, which we've also had 
in discussion on at X-Ray. Now, there have been also some developments about alignment and collaboration with the other group. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's um, that's um, was also really exciting news that um, happened a couple of weeks ago that um, you know, we've been in discussions with Universal Preschool now for, you know, for several months now trying to figure out how can we, how can we align um, with this really amazing work that and this really, you know, shared goal that we had of bringing preschool access to three and four year olds in Multnomah County. Um, but how can we align, you know, the different ways that we were coming from to make this happen. Um, so we started talking, um, like I said, several months ago and really started talking about what were our shared values and our shared goals. And as you can imagine, there were a lot, right? These are, you know, two groups of people who are really passionate about bringing um, preschool and making it a reality for kids here in Multnomah County. Um, so we started with that and we, you know, had a lot of conversations that I think, um, you know, actually influenced the policies of both groups as we were moving forward. And then recently in the last, um, you know, in the last few weeks, we were really able to get down to like, what are those, what are those final things that are um, really, um, that we need to address to make sure we get to unification. So we were able to have those conversations about making sure that there was going to be um, a path to universality with just one vote for preschool for all, right? So we're going to have a, we're going to have, we're starting off with a, with a, a tax rate, um, you know, for um, high income earners, um, but that will have an automatic bump in 2026 to make sure that we can get to universality in one go goal, which was really important. And then we had some discussions about what exactly the wages for assistant teachers would look like to make sure that, um, that we were recognizing exactly um, what we could do for them. So that's been, those were the main things. Those were the things that we most recently changed in, in um, the resolution and the ordinance that um, we put forward to the county commission to, to voters. And um, because of making those changes, um, we were in a place where Universal Preschool Now could be um, you know, supportive of preschool for all and um, really with the goal of having only one measure on the ballot in November. That's a very key piece of it. Um, we want to have only one measure on the ballot so that everyone in our community can get behind and support that. So that's what we're working for. So voters will see on the ballot in November a uh, preschool for all ballot measure. Is that right? Yeah, yep, that's where we are right now. We still are. Um, we still um, have the universal preschool nows. So they were able to collect signatures. I mean, they collected um, around 30,000 signatures over this past summer to qualify for the ballot, which is, again, a huge, um, a huge sign that our community is ready to support and get behind a universal preschool. Um, and, um, but when they, um, but when they decided to align under preschool for all, they wanted to make sure that there was a path to make sure we were only going to have one thing on the ballot. And that's what we're working for now. So the county commission has um, until September 3rd to really um, figure out what the path is for that, um, for that ballot measure. And there's some things that we can do um, in the county to, you know, adopt it and, and amend it so that um, it will just, so it wouldn't go forward to the ballot. And so that's what we're working on right now, making sure that that can happen. And then also what's, what's, what are the next steps for the campaign? Well, we just, you know, we, the, I think it's really looking at gearing up and switching into this really good, like, let's get this, you know, let's get this referred to the voters to now that it's going to be in the voters is like just ramping up the campaign. So it's so interesting to be looking at, you know, what this, what the campaign um, is going to look like in the area of COVID, right? I mean, I think at, at, like, and we saw this in May with some of the elections, a lot of the, the standby things that, you know, that I've done in past campaigns, knocking on doors, you know, holding house parties for people, those have all changed and are, are, um, are changing, you know, into more virtual ways, things that we can go. 
So, but it's really about getting the word out to Multnomah County voters um, that this is coming before them and making sure people understand exactly, um, you know, how good this is for our children, how good this is for our workers and how good this is for all of us. Um, and, and marching along with that. So you'll see, um, you know, I think a lot of social media, um, a lot of preschool for all, you know, um, things as we go, as we go forward to the ballot. And then, you know, it's going to be exciting to just keep talking about this in a broader way and, and sh saying how we can make it a reality for folks. And if, if someone, if a voter doesn't have a child or isn't connected to a child who's three or four, isn't connected to the childcare industry, why does this matter to the community? You know, um, when we, when we talk about it, you know, and especially for people who, you know, like you said, may not have children or not be familiar with what preschool to do, you know, if you look at research, it really shows that the earlier that you can make investments in someone's life, the more impactful they are and also the more cost effective they are, right? So the, so if we can be making upstream investments that really, um, that are really, you know, those that are shown to, um, to make a difference like quality early education, for instance, um, that has profound impacts on those children's lives, um, their lives, even research has shown in like their next generation of their kids, right? Um, there's been a, a very famous um, study um, that has really looked at that. And so, um, and that, that has um, ripples out into our community in terms of the workforce we're building, in terms of um, you know, the achievements that we're going to be seeing for children as they go through their education experiences. Um, Quality preschool experiences um, help to um, help people with help children with their education achievement, with their high school graduation rates, um, with their with lack of contact with our justice system. Right, there's all of these things that, as a community, are good for our community. Um, you know, we don't want to be. I work at the county, and we do not. We spend a lot of time and effort trying to help people who are who are struggling right now, who are in crisis right now. Um, and we're and we're paying money and we're making those investments because you know because pe people need that help now. But if we can make making these smarter up upstream investments like early education, um, that's going to be fun of benefit all of us for the long run. And how can our listeners best support preschool for all? So people um, can go to um, find preschool for all on our Facebook page and like it. They could go to preschoolforall.org on our website and sign up to endorse it. And while you're there on that page, you can also see um, the dozens of organizations that are already supporting um, and endorsing preschool for all. Um, and you can sign up to get on our mailing list to get up, you know, up to date on what's happening um, with the campaign and find out more ways to get involved as we move forward in really talking to voters. Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson, thank you so much for your vision for our community and moving Preschool for All forward. Thank you so much, Emily. It's been great talking with you. Thanks to Mike, Dr. Simons, Dr. Lee, and Commissioner Vega-Peterson for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.